This is the Week in Addiction Medicine, a podcast resource of timely news and top stories brought to you by the American Society of Addiction Medicine, ASAM. Today is Tuesday, May 9th, and I'm Claire Rasmussen. Our lead story this week, subtypes in addiction and their neurobehavioral profiles across three functional domains, is in translational psychiatry. This study hypothesized that considerable individual differences exist in the three functional domains underlying addiction, approach-related behavior, executive function, and negative emotionality. Results support functionally derived subtypes, demonstrating considerable individual heterogeneity in the multidimensional impairments in addiction. This confirms the need for mechanism-based subtyping in order to inform the development of personalized addiction medicine approaches. A new study in PLOS One is titled Characteristics and Impact of Physical Activity Interventions During Substance Use Disorder Treatment Excluding Tobacco. This systematic literature review examined physical activity as a component in the treatment of substance use disorders. Types of physical activity included jogging, walking, resistance exercise, cycling, and elliptical training. Typically, sessions were of moderate intensity for 60 minutes three times a week for 13 weeks. A decrease in substance use was observed in 75% of studies. Over half of the studies included psychological outcomes and showed improvements in depressive symptoms. Four studies included sleep quality and all showed improvement. The authors concluded that physical activity can be beneficial for these patients. Next, we have a study in Journal of Substance Use and Addiction Treatment titled Transitioning Off Methadone, a qualitative study exploring why patients discontinue methadone treatment for opioid use disorder. This study considered reasons for discontinuing methadone, as well as the ideal length of treatment and ways to improve retention. Patients reported methadone as a bridge to recovery, but felt long-term use caused damage and increased cravings for cocaine. Patients also reported external factors such as inaccessibility, burdensome dosing, and stigma. A new study in British Journal of Pharmacology is titled Chronic Alcohol-Induced Mechanical Allodynia by Promoting Neuroinflammation. In this study, the authors explore pain related to alcohol use in a mouse model. Among mice with dependence, 100% developed abstinence-related hypersensitivity, as indicated by allodynia, experiencing normal stimuli as pain, which was relieved by alcohol intake. Among mice without dependence, 50% developed alcohol-evoked neuropathic pain. In both models, microglial activation occurred in the spinal cord, but with different pathways. The authors suggest that investigation of these two pathways could lead to targeted therapies and potentially address pain as a factor in alcohol use disorder. The next article is in New England Journal of Medicine titled Beyond the X, Next Steps in Policy Reforms to Address the Overdose Crisis. In this perspective, the authors consider the new 8-hour training requirement for prescribers of buprenorphine with the application or renewal of DEA registration. The authors find this requirement problematic, instead suggesting the provision of addiction medicine education in medical school and training programs so that providers meet this requirement. Several suggested policy changes, including incentives for low-barrier treatment, could ensure patients seeking medications for opioid use disorder get the care that they need. Our next article, titled Trends in Buprenorphine Initiation and Retention in the United States, 2016-2022, to is in JAMA. This study used data from the Longitudinal Prescription Database to calculate rates of initiation of buprenorphine treatment and treatment retention. 
Researchers looked for increased buprenorphine use because of relaxed waiver requirements in April 2021 and eased pandemic restrictions, allowing better access to healthcare. In 2016 and 2018, buprenorphine initiation rate increased from 12.5 to 15.9 per 100,000. However, between 2018 and 2022, the initiation rate did not increase. This flattening occurred prior to the onset of the pandemic. The authors conclude that efforts to increase buprenorphine use have been insufficient. Next is an article in New England Journal of Medicine titled, How the FDA Can Improve Public Health. The FDA has approved only three types of drugs for helping people quit smoking, and there have been no substantial advances in FDA-approved smoking cessation products in the last 17 years. Reviewing the Center for Drug Evaluation and Research Approval Processes and Requirements and the Center for Tobacco Products, parallel regulation of nicotine-containing products will be challenging. The authors argue that encouraging the development and marketing of consumer-desirable, effective smoking cessation aids could represent a profound contribution to public health. Our final article, titled Rapid Analysis of Drugs, a Pilot Surveillance System to Detect Changes in the Illicit Drug Supply to Guide Timely Harm Reduction Responses, is in MMWR. Between 2021 and 2022, at Maryland Syringe Service Programs, the National Institute of Standards and Technology tested 496 samples, of which 74% were positive for opioids. Among the 367 samples that tested positive, 98.9% tested positive for fentanyl or an analog. The authors note that being able to provide timely data to persons who use drugs about the drugs that they use versus what they intend to use could reduce public health harms. This concludes today's episode of This Week in Addiction Medicine. Remember to subscribe to the ACM Weekly for more exclusive content and our editor's commentary, delivered every Tuesday. Be sure to check us out on social media and ACM.org. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.